And we're live. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Blasters and Blades podcast. I almost did it again, got the wrong name. I figure by year four, definitely, dear listener, I will get the title right every time, all the time. But uh, yeah. until then, you got to bear with me some. So, hey, all oh, you yeah. crazy sci-fi and fantasy <laughs> Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we're going to let our guest, the uh, greatest of all times, Mr. Scott Moon. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Hey, Glad to be here. My name is Scott Moon. I write uh, space opera, military sci-fi, primarily uh, a little bit of a little bit of everything. But those are the ones I I'm having the most traction with. So I've done. Uh, let's see, uh, the Last Reaper is my biggest series. Currently working on a new one to come out called Homeworld Lost. Okay, and the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we first found them. But I actually found uh scott through his podcast of the keystroke medium many many moons ago we won't say how long it's been uh <laughs> but it was a it was a fun show it was back in the beginning where they were interviewing people uh yeah. and the setup wasn't quite yeah. as pretty i think you were interviewing the first time i saw you nick cole and he was doing one of his stakeout type uh, videos where he's like very noir under the, the street light yeah. in the dark yeah, you can't beat that. That one yeah. and the second one I watched, you interviewed him and Jason together, and Jason was eating a cheeseburger live, making everyone else hungry. Oh, um, sure. So it's it's been a little bit. <laughs> and, and I never looked back. And uh, I have to say, I really do like your writing. Your shorty verse is amazing. That's my favorite. And I really wish oh, you'd do more with it. Yeah, I know. It's it definitely, is. I, I like the uh, – are you planning on it at some point coming back to it? I I have a book started in it. The idea was I had the, the four novellas I did with it and I was going to do a whole series. I got book covers and everything. And, um, you know, things happen in weird ways. So I just haven't really been able to give it my, my full attention, but the, that those are some of my favorite characters. Definitely one of my favorite settings and situational, I don't know, issues, I guess, given the, the harsh environment they have to operate in. It was um, a worthy successor to Battletech, and um, you made it cooler. So, <laughs> well done. High praise. All right. So for the uh, religion question, since you've been here before, we had to mix it up a little bit for you, but mm. Battlestar Galactica, Stargate, or Babylon 5? Uh, probably Babylon 5, I think I'm going. Uh, what, what was it about Babylon 5 um, that appeals to you? Oh, I like the, the what is it, the Vorlon or whatever, kind of the mystery is the dark force out there. And I'm just intrigued by by the power of their kind of intrusion upon your characters there at Babylon 5. It's been a minute since I, I watched them, uh, but that I really did like, I did like that series quite a bit. So I actually managed uh, Scott Bartlett's uh, Facebook fan club because, you know, I'm a fan of his too. And uh, right. so I, I, because he writes some of the harder sci-fi and the space opera, I try to mix it up like actual science posts and, and nerdy sci-fi posts. And so one of the things that keeps coming up when I find videos of actual physicists and, um, and you know, people that mess with the field of space as a science, they all say that Babylon 5 got the uh, flight mechanics for their fighter scenes the closest to what we I understand it to be. I've heard, probably you told me that oh. first, but I have heard that a, a couple of times. You know, I, I love reading, reading all the science stuff, like, you know, but I'm not confident writing it. And so I, I try to make 
my stuff, you know, you know, reasonably suspension of disbelief, you know, quality level. Um, but yeah, I don't write the hard sci-fi. Yeah. I try to write it hard enough to make it work. <laughs> yeah. I think you were in my graduating class at Hanwavium University. Yeah, there you go. All right. And because we're polytheistic, Beastmaster, Clash of the Titans, or Dragon Slayer? Oh, my God. I'm going to go Beastmaster. It's a good one. I liked all three, so I don't know that I could have picked a favorite. Those, those uh, are tough. And the same with, uh, with the Battlestar Galactica. I, I, I liked the new version of that. Although I haven't seen the old version straight through, I'm going to try to fix that. But uh, I like the way they redid Starbucks character. Yeah. And I'm digging Stargate. I haven't actually seen Babylon 5. That's on my list as well. My problem is that I, so I, I love, love, love watching those movies and series in the sci fi channel, but I've worked nights for, you know, a quarter of a century and had lots, I was on call out all the time. And so I would start these series, watch like two episodes, and then never get to see it again. So a lot of the classics I've only seen in bits and pieces. Like Babylon 5, I've seen a whole bunch of random episodes, but I've probably seen the most of that. Um, but a lot of the other ones I haven't finished. Like I haven't finished any of the Battlestar Galactica, even though I've set out to do it. And plus I see squirrels and I get distracted and stuff. But most <laughs> of the time it's writing. I don't spend a lot of time watching TV just because limits, I guess. I'm the same way. I, I like these shows. I've started, I, I started Supernatural recently, and then Titans the uh, on HBO the uh, uh, DC stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I have uh, the tendency to get sucked in. So oh, like yeah. I can oh I'm just gonna watch one episode and five hours later, and yeah. I just can't do that when you've got you know kids and words and yeah <laughs> you can only do so much. Oh, yeah, the, the only time so like. Um... Yeah, I'm definitely, I love to binge if I can. So the only times I've been able to finish stuff, like it depends if like there's been some times when it's been winter when I was still working nights and there's like nothing happened between like, you know, four o'clock and when I go home, it's around seven. And so I, I did watch like the last show series I watched all the way through was the Queen's Gambit and I could not stop it. I was like a hardcore addict to that one. I don't know what it was about it. Um, I did the same thing with the first three episodes of Yellowstone, but then I haven't watched the rest of them and a few others. So, you know, it just depends. I'm, I'm pretty eclectic. I've heard good things about Yellowstone. It is on my to watch list, Yeah, but that list grows longer every day and my time gets shorter and shorter. It's ridiculous. Wow, that's kind of dark. I just meant because I'm busy <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and I'm trying to fit yeah. in e even more exercising and stuff. It's one yeah. of those things like the more you do, the more you want to do. It's mm -hmm. weird. Oh, yeah. Well, so. I, retired, I retired recently, so I thought I had all this time. So I tried to like restart. Like I got my bass back there in the corner and my guitars. But um, so I think I have all this time. But what I, I also have a really bad habit. I'll set my writing goals on a good day. So like a couple of days ago, I wrote 7,000 words. And I was like, I'm going to write at least 5,000 to 7,000 words every day. Well, on any normal day, you're lucky to get two or three, you know, for me. And so that that's that's a, a, a um, very persistent or consistent uh, thing I do is I, I'll set my goals on a good same way with working out. I'll have a good workout. And I'm like, I'm going to do 50 sets of this exercise or whatever. And then two days into it, you're completely destroyed. And you're like, why am I working out for two hours a day? I should probably take a break. Well, congratulations on retiring. Gotham City will never be the same again, but uh, well done. 
So because we here at the Blasters and Blades podcast love both the fantastical and the scientific, what was your first love, sci-fi or fantasy? Fantasy. Do you remember uh, what your first uh, – go ahead. Oh, well, I, I mean, I started out so, um, so my mom was uh, when I was, you know, probably 11 or 12 or so, she was a high school librarian and she'd been an English teacher before that. And then eventually she went and she was like an assistant principal when I was in high school and whatnot. But she also started the alternative school um, in our town and, and she dropped, she reduced the uh, dropout rate to almost nothing because she had a way of getting everybody through school, even if it took, you know, um, some contracts and how to get them through the school in the way that fit for them. And, you know, this is Western Kansas. So it's pretty cutting edge. I was really proud of her. But so the, what, I, what that means is, is I knew everybody and I especially knew the quirky, weird people. I knew all the troublemakers. I mean, I knew some serious, I didn't know at the time, but they were, they were, they were troubled. But, um, but she had this policy where she would let people come in the library, no questions asked, as long as they didn't cause any problems. And so a lot of people kind of sheltered there and there was this kind of weird community. Well, in one of those groups, they all played D and D. And so I was, when I was 12, I was playing D and D Dungeons and Dragons, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons with like, you know, seniors in high school and, and whatnot. And uh, so I got really into fantasy. Um, I started reading Michael Moorcock, the Stormbringer books, um, Carl and Wagner, and uh, some of those and, and uh, the Horse Clan books, um, uh, Dragons of Pern, all, all kinds of stuff. Although Dragons of Pern is probably actually sci-fi, but, and then it just kind of, then I kind of went all over the place. My, yeah, I could go on and on about that, but that's kind of how I got sucked into reading and writing a lot and those types of things. Do you remember what your first uh, engagement in speculative fiction was? I remember last time you mentioned audiobooks with your mom, but was you said if I asked you a different day, you might get a different answer. So, yeah, we're talking about engagement as in consuming or producing. Consuming, like what was the first memory you have of something speculative fiction? I'm guessing probably some sort of cartoon. Well, I, I remember. I remember. Well, no, my yeah, I guess I probably had cartoons. We did. We had Saturday morning cartoons with the Justice League. When I, when I was a kid. So you had, you know, one hour, one time a week and you better be up for it and you better not be in trouble. So you get grounded from it. Unlike now where it's just anytime you want anything, you can have it. But, um, but I remember, so when I was, I think in fourth or fifth grade, well, in fourth grade, we had a teacher, I think she's out of lessons planned, but she would read a uh, little house on the prairie to us for part of the day each day. And that was my favorite part. I'd sit there and listen to her read, that and that's fiction, maybe historical fiction or memoir a little bit. Um, and then shortly after that, my dad would pay me a dollar a book to read a book. And so I read um, all the Black Stallion books. I can't remember who wrote those, um, but I'd read those and that lasted for about six books. And then he kind of stopped forgetting to pay me and I, st I uh, forgot to stop reading the book. So I just kept reading after that. So I got like, <laughs> you know. So but you're going to send him an IOU? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Hey, you owe me I've read like 4,000 books. You need to probably need to open an account someplace. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so we did, we did do a lot of audio books cause you know, in Kansas, you do a lot of driving to anything. And so we started listening to audio books back when they were on tape. And uh, if we couldn't get an audio book, we'd read to each other while we drove. Um, and then if we ran out of that, then we'd like, you know, count telephone poles and shit while we we're driving. So you know, very exciting time. 
So what is it about the larger umbrella of speculative fiction that you love as a genre? I, I love not being bored. So one of the, one I remember one of my earliest traumas as a kid is, is I was my parent, both my parents worked like three jobs for as long as I ever can remember. And so I'd come home from school and a lot of times it's just me, you know, and if my friends weren't around, it was just, I'd be so painfully bored. And I got to the point where like, I don't want to be bored. And so I just kind of started daydreaming and that led into books and stuff. And it did, it just was a real easy step to start writing. And of course my mom was an English teacher. So she's always talking about books. Like she would talk about Heinlein and Asimov and, um, you know, uh, Fahrenheit 451 and all these other classics, but then also other literature. She always talked about being well-read is important. I didn't really know what it meant, but we talk about different stories and stuff all the time. And then when I was 12, she said, we should write a book for kids your age because I was playing D&D. And that was kind of before you had like middle grade fiction or even YA. And so I started writing this book, basically a D&D campaign. I wish I'd have written it now with all the lit RPG stuff going on. Um, but that was my first attempt and I don't remember much about it, but I do remember there was a big battle with some orcs and where some arrows hitting somebody in the face and them falling in a big greasy pot of stew or something. But other than that, I'm not sure what the rest of the story was about. I think there was a lich involved or something, but, um, and once I started doing that, I was completely hooked. I was like, this is what I'm going to do for a living. So that's, that's been, you know, that's been 41 years ago. So how did your... How did you take that? I like writing and it's fun to the day you said, I'm going to put my first novel up for sale. So um, I was, I was right. I was, I was a fan of Stephen King. Um, the other thing my mom talked about, she would talk about interviews and stuff. And if I hadn't read the interview, I'd heard it. And I, and I remember either she'd told me about it or I'd heard it someplace or I'd read the article where Stephen King made this famous for the quote. He says, I write on every day except for my birthday and Christmas. Um, and I remember my mom saying he wrote 3000 words a day or something like that. And so I would always try to have a word count from very early on. Although at the time I was handwriting on legal pads and stuff. And, um, I would always try to write every day and write as much as I can. And I just got into this habit of doing those types of things. And I always, I dreamed, like I dreamed about getting a, a red turbo twin turbo Corvette. When I was in high school, I wanted to write a big book get super rich and have a twin turbo Corvette. And that was very motivating for me at the time. I I don't have a vet, but maybe someday. You just need to sell a few more books and then your wife will let you buy one. Right. Yeah. It's not as dangerous as a motorcycle. That's what you sell it as. Oh yeah. There you go. See, and I've had motorcycles and nobody in in, my wife and my in-laws are not, not fans because they're in the kind of medical professions and stuff and they don't, they think they're unsafe. Well, lots of things. <laughs> well, motorcycles are really unsafe, especially if I'm driving them, but that's a whole different, whole different <laughs> podcast probably. Yeah. <laughs> so many authors let their own real life and experiences influence the way they tell stories. So do you think there was any specific moment that shaped the way you, you engage with your readers? <clears throat> probably. Well, probably a lot, mostly in more of an, more of a, a gestalt or 10,000 view perspective to answer that question is I have consciously sought out things to do throughout my entire life that I thought would enhance my writing. Like I remember one time when I was like 14 and ninjutsu was big. And so we of course didn't have a ninjutsu dojo in 
Western Kansas, but I had all these books and things and me and all my friends, we had all the gear and we would sneak out at night and creep around the neighborhood with our swords. Lucky we didn't get shot by the police at that point. Cause there were some times we may have ran into them and threw some firecrackers and whatnot, but, um, you know, we'd run around, jump off of houses and climb and walk along the tops of fences. Like you would see in comic books now and all that stuff. And, um, but I remember one time I was sitting there writing and my dad was talking to my mom, they were divorced at the time, but I remember him saying, I wasn't supposed to be in the conversation, but I had a, I had a habit of listening to adults when I, from when I was a little kid, I'll, I'll actually, I'll come back to that. But, um, and he said, what I really like about all this martial arts is that it really affects his writing. And I'd already kind of had that idea of doing stuff that would feed into the writing but I always did that. Everything I did, like I went to LA when I was 18 to do music. And that was part of a writing experience, a big adventure. I tried to go in the military, but I got DQ'd. I went into the police department. I did all these different assignments on the police department. Um, you know, try to travel and see things and, and I try to feed all of that into the writing. As far as I, I did try to consciously not write the stories that I saw, especially as a police officer, because that kind of felt like cheating. Um, but I do think that they did affect my writing, like in a more indirect way. That makes sense. And there are probably some things that you did, and we don't need to really get into that. We talked about that some last time, but there are some things that you would do in law enforcement, just like in the military, that yeah. the regular public isn't yeah. rea re they're not ready for the reality of that, I don't think. Right. And they don't, they don't really appreciate there's some nuance there. Like for example, my last series did, I think it did really well, but it hadn't didn't. So I did the last Reaper, which was kind of my breakout series. Um, I did galactic shield um, earlier, the, well into 2023 and it had pretty good success, but it wasn't as good as the last Reaper. And in that book, the main character is um, a military veteran who's become a, a police officer in a far distant galaxy. And he has a squad of police officers. So it's kind of like a NCIS show in space, but with like battle mechs and stuff. So I think it's a cool concept, but, um, but like there is a little bit more realism in the ways like they don't just kick down doors. They have to have a warrant and they have to get probable cause and they have to get this thing reviewed and they got to present it to a judge. And there's all these things. Well, people didn't like that as much. They didn't buy off on it. So I guess that wasn't as, as exciting. Um, but the people who did read it really loved it, but I couldn't get people to give it a chance, I guess, because it's maybe too, too real in some ways. Yeah. That's one of the things that uh, people think when they watch CSI or whatever, that that's real. And you talk to anybody that works law enforcement and they laugh at the idea of the, uh, the turnaround on the DNA being like hours, not years. And yeah. <laughs> well, and it's in science fiction, you can um, do pretty serious hand wave you and stuff. Hand wave you and stuff. Help me get some echo of myself. So, you're okay. So, I actually think that uh, that's the other one is I've actually, uh, for I did some ghostwriting in the beginning and I actually wrote a, a crime procedural as a ghostwriter. So, I interviewed some local detectives to try to get some stuff right. It's amazing what they'll do for uh, for some coffee in a, in a, or a beer and pizza when you need information out of them. And that was yeah. one of the things they said that they've actually noticed since those shows started becoming big, that there are people getting arrested because they thought they committed the perfect crime because they saw, oh, this is how it works on TV. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> they're like, uh, I almost thank the uh, whoever's advising them and getting it all wrong. Yeah. Like, well, that's so. the thing. Like, you're, you're like the, uh, the serious, like, 
kind of used to be like the serial killers and things like that. I don't think that's, those are as hard to catch now as like the actual random things. The ones that are hard to catch are like gangbangers where nobody will talk to you, including the victims and the victims go tell you to go to hell. And, and you're like, you can't, it's hard to get those charged sometimes, but like, what was it up in, I think it was, where was it? We had the, the guy that stabbed the four co-eds um, in college in the dorm rooms last year. Oh, uh, was, I know what you're talking about. I'm, I'm, I can't remember the name because I, I try not to get follow it too closely, but, um, but they caught him. I knew there as soon as that happens, like they're going to catch the guy who did that. I guarantee it. And they did. And he was, and he had, he was getting his PhD in criminal justice. So he probably thought he had everything figured out, but he did not. He was a dummy. So speaking of serving your community, yeah, an evil one. Speaking of serving your community, your bio mentions that, like we mentioned earlier, you were law enforcement for Gotham PD before you retired. Yes. How do you feel like your time in uniform affects the stories that you tell? Uh, You know, I think it does lots of good things, mostly because I met all manner of people, you know, at their good time, mostly at their bad times, but sometimes at their good times. And so, you know, being a student of people is the best thing you can do as a writer. And, uh, you just, because people tell stories, you listen, you get like, uh, twice the bang for your buck. You get all the cool things you get to do, plus all the things they tell you about. So it's really good. Um, uh, it's easier for me to write darker stuff. Uh, mostly what I've kind of made, made my, my living at lately. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun, but if you're look really carefully, there could be some darker topics. And, and every now and then I go down a, a little bit darker trail just because I can't help, help myself. Cause of some of the assignments I was in, I had to be careful not to, not to get, uh, too, too, uh, too dark. That's fair. So do you ever draw on people, um, that you knew either as officers or the, whatever the other side of that would be? Cause you don't want to necessarily call them criminals, the public, um, do you ever draw on people you knew from your time wearing the badge? Not directly, um, except for like a very, very few exceptions. And it's usually in, in a terms of it, like a stolen phrase. Um, and I usually I don't do it consciously. Like um, I have one of my close friends I was on the SWAT team with for a long time. And he would, and he was a great storyteller and he was from like uh, Wisconsin or something. So he had a tiny bit of accent left but he would tell a story and he'd always kind of, when he, when he was getting to the, to the part that wasn't that entertaining, he'd be like, and blah, blah, blah. And then he'd go on to the, to the fun stuff. And that <laughs> phrase, blah, blah, blah is in a lot of my books. It just, I can't help it because he drilled it into my hardwired into my, my psychology is, you know, is how people, how people could talk. So those things will leak in. Sometimes somebody use a, a, a interesting phrase or tell me a joke that just kind of has to go in there. Um, I had a, a officer, give me a big story about Cobra chickens because we had a lot of geese that were around our station. And I was like, yeah, there's definitely going to be some Cobra chickens in the next book. Um, and then, I'll, <laughs> and then I, I like to use names. So um, when I was, a lot of times I'll take names of, of people. Like when I was a Lieutenant, I would take people in my squad and I would take their names. Like um, one of the guys in my blue center Mata his his name is Billiam um, because his name was William but for some reason his mom didn't like him him to be called Bill or something. And so one day I come into work and they're like, call him Bill. It's hilarious. And I'm like, why is calling him Bill hilarious? And I couldn't figure it out, but it just made him uncomfortable. And so one day somebody called him Billiam on accident. I'm like, that's, that's one I'm taking. So I have a whole bunch of characters named, but I don't take what they do. 
because I don't want to accidentally like let my subconscious judgment of somebody show through or like they think, oh, he thinks I'm stupid or he holds me at a unrealistically high um, hero. He, he worships me or something. I don't, I don't want any of that to show through and I don't want people to think. So I'm very careful not to steal um, people's personalities in whole cloth. I'd let it leak in um, to different characters and things like that. I think that's, I think that's a better way to go. And in fact, I didn't write, I never wrote any police. Right. Stuff I never wrote any police stuff like 10 years because I didn't want to like people to feel self-conscious that I was stealing their stories. They're going to say something that's going to end up in a book. So I'm very careful not to do that. The one, one exception. And so I was finishing up, I was trying to finish a deadline on one of my, um, Invasion Day. It's technically it's that they came for blood, but it's an uh, alien invasion series I, I solo produced. And I needed to get it done because I had put it up for pre order. And so I called my lieutenant, uh, Christopher Halloran, and I said, I want to, uh, I need to take a day off so I can finish this. And he goes, Okay, only if you put me in the book. And I said, Okay, how do you want to die? And he's like, What? Because he reads, but doesn't read that much sci fi. And, and, and I said, well, I'm going to redshirt you. That's what you want, right? You know, you, you, I'll put your name in the book. You'll die gloriously. So how do you want to die? How bloody do you want it to be? And he goes, no, man, I want to kick ass and live. I'm like, well, that's really fucking inconvenient, but I'll do it. And so, <laughs> so I made him a character in that series. And I made him like a, because he was a Marine. So I made him like an ex-Marine um, um, contractor for a big corporation. And he, and he has a pretty big part to play, but he wonders these aliens and he just is always getting his ass kicked. He's getting terribly wounded. He's losing body parts, getting them replaced by cybernetics. And so by the end, he's like mostly cyborg. He's got a cyborg girlfriend and, and but he just kicks a lot of, a lot of butt and whatnot. And he loves it. And his whole family loves it. <laughs> so in that case, I specifically, I didn't still didn't really take his personality and whole cloth but it's definitely was, it was something that was done uh, kind of in honor of a real person, I guess, for lack of a better term. And it was, it was, it was a blast. I really love that one. Okay. So we talked about, well, first off, do you think now that you're retired, you might draw more directly are you on your military or your military on your police time? Or do you think you'll keep the same policy as far as how you refer to people? It's probably to say that mostly the same. And, um, you know, I, I write so much that you might, the way I write is, is, I mean, I, I like to say I constantly improve and change, but you know, I got a pretty, some pretty deep grooves in my imaginary road that we're traveling here because I've, I think Amazon says I've written like, I think 46, 48 books now, but it's sad when you're like, I honestly couldn't even tell you how many books that I have published because I just lose track. Um, you know, I mean, I, I write, yeah, I write, I write a lot. Well, the Amazon counts them funny. That's why I don't give people a hard number because like it counts a novella as a book. Well, to me, that's not a book. Um, or it counts me being an anthology as a book and that's not a book, but it also counts, you know, my 110,000 word book, the same as my 80,000 word book. So I kind of, I kind of estimate and I'll go through my head. It, it's, it's a funny thing to do with people who aren't writers when I'll run into them and they find out I'm a writer and they say, well, have you written a book? I said, oh, I've written 45. And the first, after they get done gaping at me and then they're like, well, how many? And I'm like, well, I can't tell you exactly. Let me count them up. And then I'll go through and I'll be like, okay, the last Reaper has 15. Terrence Strike Marines has five. Uh, they came from what is four, you know, I'll go through, I'll play that game with them. And they're just, just staring at me like you are not a normal person, which is 
True. <laughs> okay. So do you feel like your time in uniform affects the way you engage with content? We talked a little bit about how it affects like the way you write and the way you tell stories. Do you think it affects how you engage as a reader, a watcher of this stuff? Yes. Um, because, well, so I, I, I differentiate a few things. Um, assuming I'm interpreting your question correctly, but like as a reader or a consumer, um, I've seen lots of good, lots of bad. Uh, I've seen, I've been around enough to know that stuff doesn't really make sense. And if you demand that every instance is fair or right or accurate, you're probably going to be hugely disappointed. So like, for example, if I go to see a Star Wars movie, I just go to see the movie. I love Star Wars. I would like them to stay true to the canon, but I don't go there ready for an emotional outrage that they didn't follow the canon or they did something stupid to one of my favorite characters. I just take that movie as it is and try to enjoy it in the moment because moments of like pure enjoyment and happiness are rare and you should cherish them. And why, why sabotage yourself by getting all worked up that that writer didn't have the proper credentials to, to write this or they put too much social messaging in it. I'm like, I, the social, the social messaging that's really prevalent now in movies and things like that. I'll take it or leave it. I'm a grown ass person. You can social message me or social shame me or whatever you call it all you want. I'm, I'm still going to have my own opinion. So I don't care. Some people get really worked up about it. They're very angry to me. It, 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 it uh, takes away some of your quality of life, which is hard enough to find as it is. So I don't get mad about that stuff or I try not to, or if I get mad, I try to get unmad really quickly. So that, that'd be the main thing I take away from it is, is the ability to uh, kind of drive my own bus. As a police officer, there's always somebody trying to push your buttons, trying to ruin your calm. And you have to be able to, you have to be able to drive your own bus. You can't let them push your buttons and uh, get a reaction out of you. You got to decide when you're going to be happy, when you're going to be creative. Um, and then I bring a lot of discipline uh, to my writing because I've always had to write and work. And like when I was in the academy, I got up two hours early um, to write for two hours before I went to the academy. And I've always done that. Um, my When I was working first shift as a sergeant, my shift started at 6.30. So I had to get up at 3. And I got up at 3 every morning. I write for about two hours, get my ass to work. And then if I got a lunch break, I'd write then too. I usually didn't get a lunch break. But if I did, I definitely wrote on it. Okay. Well, I was more thinking like, for instance, if I watch a, a gun, guns in a movie, like I'm definitely, uh, they fire too many bullets, that kind of thing. Like oh, yeah. I noticed those yeah. details or when they get the culture, right? Like, I'm sorry, there's no way your sergeant is standing there watching a private mouth off to a Lieutenant and he doesn't get a little bit of wall to wall counseling and a few smacks about the backside of it. Well, maybe not in the modern army. I think things have changed, but when yeah. I was in like that, just, I would have got my butt handed to me and rightly oh, yeah. so. So when I see that, I'm on screen, you know, it just kind of. Yeah, I'll laugh that off pretty quickly, but I'll quickly spot it when it's super dumb. Um, but I also know as, as a writer who's trying to be commercially, I also know that trying to make like a police scene be an actual true to life policing is probably the quick way to not have any sales because that's boring and nobody cares about that. Um, but so I'll, I'll, I'll let it go for the sake of uh, what was the phrase we used? Um, when we were talking pre-show, you talked about show is rule of cool. Rule of cool matters if, if you're writing commercially. Yeah. So sometimes I'll take a cool stuff. But I do, 
but where I, where I find it really interesting is like, um, like when you see something that gets it right, at least enough, right. To make you really excited. Like the first season of true detective, um, which is extremely not realistic, but it has enough of the stuff in, in your feels. It has it right. Um, where you're like, that's badass, or like, um, uh, like watching the shield or, um, which I, I never watched. I only watched the first season like last year and it's like a 20 year old season now. And all my, all my coworkers are making shield jokes. I'm like, I'd go along with them, but I had no idea what they're talking about. I didn't have time to watch that. But now I watch it and I'm like, Holy shit. I know that guy that's that character, (laughs) you know? So when something's good, you appreciate it more when something's stupid, you have to laugh it off. All right. Fair. So let's transition away from the writing side and talk about things from a fan angle. So have you gotten any cool cosplay? Uh, has anybody cosplayed your characters or sent you cool fan art? I, I've gotten some fan art mostly through Cheney's uh, Facebook group page. Uh, there's when Reaper was really humming, I got quite a bit through that. And that was before people could just bounce it out with an AI art generator. So that was pretty neat. Um, I've got some interesting, I've got, I haven't really, I don't think I've, I don't know if I've had anybody cosplay, but um, but I have got some really cool fan, uh, engagement, um, uh, both through the internet, but I've also had some real life ones where I ran into somebody unexpected that has read my books and recognized my name. And, and that was, that was pretty cool. Makes you feel kind of big time, um, and stuff like that. Yeah. That's exciting stuff. And anytime, and you get people that are like, we get a super fan. There's really nothing quite as amazing as having a super fan and, and you just feel so blessed. I get up every morning and pray for all that I have been blessed with, with all this stuff, because um, I really don't know why I'm having the success. I mean, I'm not Stephen King, but I'm doing a lot better than I thought I ever would. So um, it's just, it's cool when people like what you do. I guess that's a short answer. Okay. Have you had anybody ask for your autograph yet? Um, Yeah, sometimes I do. And, um, it's, it's, it's some, some people know actually actually read your book and asked for, or they just find out you're a writer. And it's almost, some of those are almost like, are you just messing with me? Uh, but yeah, I get a lot. I've had some at um, some conferences and you know, it's fun. Okay. Do you remember the first time someone asked for your autograph and it wasn't cause they were pulling you over for a speeding ticket? <laughs> yeah. I can't remember exactly. Like I said, I haven't had a lot, but I, um, I think, well, I think it's at 20 books. It might've, I might've been at OWFI, which is Oklahoma writing conference, but I think it was at 20 books. The first time somebody, somebody asked for my, my autograph, the biggest fan stuff actually I've ever had experiences from the keystroke medium show, because we would go to the, the 20 books in Vegas conference. And I, I remember meeting um, Kayleen Williams and she comes walking up to us. I'm like, she's walking right to us. I didn't, and I didn't recognize her from her, from her, you know, screenshot or from her, I, her, uh, not emoji, whatever it is, your avatar. avatar. And, but then when she gets like about a stride away, I'm like, that's Kayleen. And then she's like, hi, I'm Kayleen. And then we started talking and it's like, we're meeting real people. Well, since then we met lots of people from the show and we had a couple of meetups that were really cool. And uh, we really have some good friends that we would never have known otherwise um, through that show. So the show is amazing. And that's, that's probably, you know, more fulfilling than getting an autograph is, just having kind of that extended family. Absolutely. So have you ever spotted anybody out in public reading one of your books? No, I have not. 
Uh, I'll, but if I do, I'll call you and let you know. We'll do another show. I'll be like, absolutely. And you gotta like, you gotta plan how you're gonna freak out and just the appropriate social context. Like, do you go all giddy and bounce up and down like a schoolgirl, or you be like, "Sup? How you doing?" <laughs> yeah. So you get the delivery just right. Yeah. I'll strip naked and run around in circles with my hands in the air. I'm sure that'll get a lot of attention from somebody. Yeah, mostly look law enforcement. Yeah. You know, you take what you can get. There's a reason they stopped doing the naked streak around the rugby pitch after you scurvy, score your first try with yeah, the team. Yeah, yeah, like that that's used to be a thing. Time. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, not anymore. No, no, that'll end you up on a list somewhere. Yeah, so, all right, finally. Yeah, not the good ones either. So what else is the weirdest or funniest uh, interaction you've had with uh, fans since you started writing? Oh, God, weird or funny? Oh, man, I'm going to sound like I'm not funny. Um, the weirdest, I guess, is – and so you got to kind of stay with me on this one to why it's weird. But So I, I work out at a gym called Orange Theory Fitness, and one of the coaches said, my dad reads your books. And I said, that's great. And – and I think we might've had the, the, the autograph stuff. And I'm, I'm thinking, okay, well, she knows I'm a writer because my wife tells everybody there that I write books. And so she told her dad and her dad looked me up and he read some of my books. And so that's why we're having this conversation. And that's the premise that I operated on for probably six months. But then one day she's like, she's like, no, he was reading a book by Scott Moon. And, and I saw it and I said, I know him. And so then she came and said, do you write books? And I say, yeah, I write, I write these books. And um, I, this has been a few years ago. I got the order kind of mixed up. But, um, and so he had, it was one of those, it was weird because I expected it was normal chain for me as meeting people through the internet. But so this came the other way where somebody recognized that. So it's almost like seeing your own book in the, in the wild. So that's the weirdest. Not that funny, but definitely caught me off guard. And I've never had one close to that in strangeness. You take what you can get. So right. obviously Absolutely. you've written a, a, a metric crap ton of books. One day, if you could just take a couple years off so we, the rest of us could catch up, that would be great. <laughs> um, <laughs> but can you give us, yeah, can you give us like the Reader's Digest version of like the series that you've written so that way uh, you can not spend the next hour just listing book names? Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll just off the top. I won't, I won't pull up my side. I'll go off the top of my head. But as far as the writing every day, maybe I could write and not publish. But I, I, I just writing is what I like to do. So I don't, uh, I didn't take this up to make money. I took it up because I like to write and was hoping to make money so that I could do more of it. Um, but so let's see. So I have the Chronicles of Ken Rowland trilogy. I have the SMC Marauders trilogy. I have the Dragon Badge trilogy, which is my only urban fantasy. It's my first thing that I did. Um, I have the Terran Strike Marines with Richard Fox, which is based on the Embers War series and in uh, one of his follow-on spinoffs that we did together. I have Dark Landing with Craig Martell, which is 12 books, 12 novellas, which I really highly recommend. They don't sell a lot now, but people really like them. So the Dark Landing is great. Um, I did... The Last Reapers, which is a 15 book series with Jeff Cheney. I did um, Orphan Wars, which we have three books out for that. I did Galactic Shield, which is a four book series with Jeff Cheney. I have They Came for Blood, which is a four book alien invasion series involving a trucker who used to be a, um, uh, what do you call it? What's well, like a fast and furious racer, a street racer. 
but he went to prison. It's a long story, but it's good. And um, I have the Blue Sun Armada, which is kind of about cyborgs that don't know they're cyborgs that were sent out to explore the, the, the galaxy. And that's a four book series that I'm kind of wrapping up here in early May. And then, of course, we have a um, bunch of short stories here and there. I have some in some of your anthologies also. And I and then the uh, Homeworld Lost, which is the newest thing, going to come out May 7th, first book in that series. So I've been okay. busy. Well, obviously, so if you uh, if you were interested in the Dark Landing stuff that, that he mentioned, he actually plotted that stuff out as part of uh, one of his Keystroke Medium podcasts. So if yes. you dig up the links in the show notes where we mentioned the KSM, you can actually watch in real time, some of his writing processes and how he thought about it. Yeah. Uh, and he did it in front of a live audience, which is brave. So yeah, if uh, that kind of thing appeals to you, you should check it out. But while all of that sounds fascinating, uh, we're going to pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. And that time it's me. They promised him one weekend a month. The House of Reason swore the ninth would never leave their gentle home world. But after Kublar, things changed for Sergeant Fetch and the Caledonian Reserve Legion Corps. Thrown into a meat grinder conflict and a desperate bid to hold the line. It doesn't matter whether you're reserve or active, only that you kill and survive. A searing tale of combat and honor at any price from a wounded veteran of the war in Iraq who fought to keep the MSRs open from Mosul to Tikrit. The Reservist, an Order of the Centurion Galaxy's Edge standalone novel. All right, I appreciate She's sponsoring myself, and uh, and the narrator did an amazing job. Hopefully, he gets his uh, his setup together because I'm trying to convince him to get into audiobook narration. Uh, he's done some other stuff where he's gotten a lot better, and it uh, it's amazing. And that takes talent too. I wish oh, I wish yeah. I had the chops to do my own audiobooks like some people do. But I love audiobooks. I like the way my voice sounds. Really appreciate a good narrator. They are truly amazing people, and I I'm glad I'm glad we have them. I'm kind of always jealous of some of the triple threats who will like narrate their own audiobooks, mm-hmm. and it actually sound good. That is not me. I, I hear my own when I have to edit these podcasts and I cringe. And I'm like, eh, no, I don't like the sound <laughs> of my own voice at all. That's uh, that seems to be a, a common refrain from people that do the podcasting, but <laughs> we appreciate you sticking with us through that commercial interlude, but let's dive into the book that brought us here. So we're going to talk about Homeworld Lost. So what was the premise for this universe? How did you come up with the idea? Psychedelics? Did you play with the Ouija board? Uh, <laughs> did Scott, or excuse me, did uh, Cheney get you drunk? Like, what's the story yeah. here? I wish that, that's, maybe I can like retroactively get drunk for it. It'd be like, you can buy buy drinks or something. Um, so <laughs> after a while, you know, kind of whenever we're working together, a lot of times we'll start getting an idea on the next series, you know, like a six months, a year in advance. And he'll say, start coming up with ideas. And so I started coming, I started, I work generally in 30 minute sprints and take a five or 15 minute break between them. And so I dedicated one sprint every morning for 30 minutes to just come up with new ideas. And I would, I did them in a Scrivener document. I made each one kind of like its own little section or chapter. And I would just kind of flush out and I came up with, oh, I don't know, five or 10 different ones I thought were good. And I sent them to him. He liked some, we kicked them back and forth. Um, but then he got, he got hooked on this idea of the, uh, that became Homeworld Lost. Um, him and some of his, his close associates, uh, were, um, 
we're working on, on some brainstorming and, and a lot of art and concept art and things like that. And he goes, here's, here's what I think we should do. And so he gave me this outline, like not a, not a full outline, but kind of like more like a detailed synopsis of each of the characters. And then like, you know, a paragraph or two on, on kind of where the story should go. And then we started working on it from there, but he, he came up with the basic premise and, and then I riff on it because when I start writing, everything mutates. So it, it kind of went, um, it expanded. I like to say it expanded nicely. So I, I remember some of those boring meetings we had to sit through where we came up with a perfect name. They call that synergy, right? Like you just work together. Yeah, there you go. I'm sure there are more buzzwords that I'm forgetting, but you know, it sounds yeah, more corporate a- and cool that way. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so before we get started about the book itself, we do have families that listen to this podcast together. Uh, and so they're always wanting to know if the book is appropriate for their young ones. So what would you say the age range uh, for this story, like like for your target audience, the youngest you would say is probably appropriate? I'd probably give it a PG-13-ish kind of feel. I mean, it's not... Um, I mean, there's violence, but it's not like I guarantee it's not any more violence than kids are seeing every day in video games or YouTube or anything that else that they're watching. You know, it's the violence would be comparable to an MCU type of thing, maybe a little grittier than that, obviously. But, um, you know, I don't kill the dog. I'm not an old yellow person. And uh, there is a, a small amount of profanity here and there. I usually don't use it. Um, for this audience, for these books, but sometimes you're dealing with a, a, a military veteran test pilot. Something's going to slip out. What I, what I've, I've replaced it by either just not using it at all, which I found as a writer actually is al- almost always more effective than you realize. Just leave it out. Um, because if you're writing the scene, right, the profanity comes across without saying it, you know, the surprise and anger and all that stuff. <clears throat> but I do have some, some interesting byplay where there's alien swear words, which are less offensive. I don't like making up swear words like people use because it sounds really false. But like my, one of my main characters is a Titan battle Lord. He's basically kind of like a big demon type character, a little bit like a hell, a hell boy or in a way like, but then with some other things like a symbiotic tape battle tale and some stuff, but his race Zyzo is a swear word. And you don't really know how bad it is, but they say it like it's a swear word. And then there's some, some interesting byplays on that. So, I mean, I would say probably PG 13 would be around there. There is, there's going to be a few, few swear words. You might not want your kids. My kids aren't have heard the the swear words, so it's not going to bother them, but other people's kids may not want to have them. And by, I mean, I'm talking like maybe 20 in the whole book. Okay. Now that's the fun part. We're going to take a moment. We're going to look at that sexy, sexy book cover that you got. And uh, I'm going to throw that mm-hmm. up on the screen. So what's the story of this artwork? Because I could see this being like a movie poster, uh, just cool art that I'd throw on my wall. Cause I like sci-fi art. Uh, I know for a fact it's not AI generated cause I know how Cheney's business runs. Cause we've talked about that kind of stuff, him and I, but uh, what's the story of coming up with this piece of art and, what was your role in the creating, like the designing the concepts? Every, every series, every every book that I do, um, he has basically a worksheet and it goes through a bunch of these questions about what type, uh, a lot of them are, a lot of them are, are kind of non-intuitive, but it'll be like, um, there's these categories, what's your book best fit into? And they will be like 
golden the golden fleece or or hero journey not hero journey i can't remember i can't remember the survey off the top of my head but a lot of them kind of relate to those types of things and then the the bunch of questions about the setting um they'll ask for a description of the main character if it matters um, they'll ask for anything really unusual. They'll ask for any like concept art that I've looked at for references, which I didn't really have much because they already had better concept art than I had um, because his artistic team is pretty talented. Um, but like, like one of the descriptions was the character and my, my main character in this series is, you know, he's a, he's athletic and strong, but not like overly muscled. So basically like a good soldier, I imagine would be, you know, you're probably somewhere, Five ten to six one ish, um, not super tall, not super short. He's muscular, but he's not going to be out there being the strongest man. So, um, so that so you can see the the build of this guy is just kind of like your average guy in his prime, you know. Um, and then he's got some upgraded armor and stuff because the part of the book is he becomes basically bonded with this living starship, and they kind of he has a lot of his genetic or a uh, cellular material replaced by material from a living starship. So he's in a weird, so he's kind of like a cyborg. That's like a bio cyborg, I guess. But one of the things that the ship does, it makes him kind of this, uh, an EVA suit or battle armor kind of across. Can't really make battle armor because the ship's not allowed to fight. And so in this picture, you can see your main character there kind of looking like a badass, wearing his, wearing this uh, armor and this is over, you know, of course, one of the worlds, there's always some world you got to go to and get something that, um, that is not going to be easy to get, <laughs> you know, things happen. So, so that, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where that comes from. And I didn't tell him all of that. He came that. So these things kind of come together um, from all the kind of weird, vague questions that I answer, but that's, that's kind of where I, where I came with that. Nice. And we're going to, uh, we, before we dive into the main story, we're going to show you the uh, Homeworld Lost Kagan's Crew, I believe is how you said you said it. I, I, I said Kagan's uh, Crew. Okay. That is a, uh, on, I will link to it in the show notes. It is on um, the publisher's website. It's a short story that was narrated by the same narrator, Neil Thorne, who did does the regular audiobooks. And it's available mm -hmm. for free right now. And it will be at the yeah. time of this episode launching when the the show comes live. So if you want the prequel and it's free, you can go on over, sign up for the newsletter. And uh, I will say some of the stuff you get for newsletter signups have been kind of danky, but you can't beat a free uh, audiobook. That's at what an hour probably of your time. It's, it's about, what'd you say? 10,000 words ish. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, it took me a lot longer than that. I think it took me about a week. Um, but this book, this, the, I really love this short story, by the way. And it's, I, know, I mean, for, yeah. Oh Yeah. Oh, to listen I to the I think, time it would take the listener to listen to yeah. it. Yeah. I think it's about an hour, but I mean, this thing went through the full editorial process, which has multiple editors and beta readers. Um, obviously the artistic team for the cover and the, and the narrator. So I, it's a, it's, it's a great little story and I, and I would encourage people to check it out. I mean, it is free. Um, I like it. And yeah. I'm very proud of it. So that link will be, donuts. I encourage you to check it out. And if you sign up for the newsletter, for for variant publishing, um, you get a bunch of these free um, teas. Well, I, I wouldn't call them teasers, but they're like short stories in existing universes mm -hmm. to sort of let you sample the world before you dive into any one series. And you, like I said, it's if you like audiobooks, man, you can't you can't beat that. So it's worth yeah. it's worth your time. Links will be in the yeah. show notes. Um, I think it's great. Deal. 
let's move on to Umbro Lost. Okay. Go ahead. You were saying, I'm sorry, we started talking at the same time. I, just, uh, I think that, that the, those, those short shows are great because, you know, you're going to know, you should know if you're going to even like this series. And a lot of people now don't want to get into a series that they're not going to like or it's not going to be finished. But, you know, we kind of give you both. Here's the quality and we will we'll finish it. So, and pretty quickly, generally. I will say that's that's what I like about Cheney. Even on book series that don't sell, he at least does the one more book to wrap up the plot lines. So that way you get some sort of conclusion if you found it and you, you're one of the, you know, the ones that liked it, but you know, cause not obviously not all books are going to hit with readers, but there's still going to be some that like it. And so he at least will give the ending a ending um, to the, to those readers. If the, even when they don't sell, cause I've, I've talked yeah, to authors yeah. he worked with who they did one more book when it didn't sell just because they wanted to give a conclusion. Yep. We definitely, which I think is commendable. Yeah. So let's move on to the ele- the book itself. So Homeworld Lost, what would your 30-second elevator pitch be? Okay, basically Homeworld Lost is a story of a uh, kind of a, a mouthy, snarky test pilot who um, is the second second choice. So back, he's a backup test pilot because the first one got killed when they, when they tried to uh, test the first warp bubble for United Earth. Um, he, of course, takes his launch. And it goes horribly wrong. He winds up in a... Uh, distant galaxy, like really distant and is saved by a living starship that bonds with him both physically and psychologically. And then they got to go on the run and basically stay, stay alive and also keep a dark threat from returning the way he came back to earth to wipe it out. That's so not what you ever make it home or blur. do what? Uh, in the end, obviously, you know, there's going to be a twisting path because series are what series are. Do mm-hmm. you plan on letting him return to earth at some point? Well, he's going to go there. I would have to decide at what, uh, how much it's going to be, um, because there's there's a distinct possibility it's impossible to get there. But the threat he's the, it's called homeworld lost for a couple of reasons. One, he's lost his homeworld because he probably can't return without some sort of extreme effort and sacrifice. Um, but it's also homeworld lost because there is a threat that somebody could use some of this technology that he brought to go back and and wipe out everything he cared about. So there's always danger. Okay. So what, obviously you mentioned that this was going to be a series. So what do you think that makes this series special? Well, I think that makes it special is the fact that, because there's actually, um, when we first were discussing the, the, the idea of um, getting rescued by a living starship, that's actually been done probably a dozen different times or more that I could find throughout the course of, of science fiction. But what makes it different is he and the ship are kind of becoming one, one creature in, in ways. And of course I do it my own way, which is, you know, squirrel, but, um, but so I lost, lost the question, but what I was going to say is that if the series goes as long as I would like it to, if it's successful, then they will be going back to earth. Cause then I can expand because earth will have that chance to upgrade because they're like, just not quite there for the long range star travel, but they'd have to be if they become part of this larger uh, galactic conflict. So given what you know about this ship, if, you know, family wasn't a consideration, would you go on the ship and bond with it if yourself? Oh yeah. The ship makes this, the ship upgrades you in every way. And the ship is awesome. Um, And the ship, there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a reason if you read the, the story, but the ship basically only really has kind of good people on it and they're flawed sometimes, 
but they're all on a journey. And so if you were to become a crew member of, of KN, then not only would you get like physically upgraded in lots of different ways, you're going to become part of very special people's lives, you know? So it's going to be kind of like a super family, but uh, yeah, I would definitely go on, on, on a KN adventure for sure. Okay. So what genres or subgenres do you think uh, Homeworld Lost fits into the best? I mean, obviously it's space exploration, probably colonization, but are there any others? You know, in a broader sense, it's space opera. It's very much similar. You know, everything I write is going to be somewhat similar tone to The Last Reaper. So your main character is going to be kind of, you know, a little bit opinionated <laughs> to say, uh, just put it nicely and kind of prone to uh, a lot of really high risk behavior if, if it means protecting people he cares about. Um, but yeah, so you would, you could do exploration. Um, you could do some alien first contact. They're definitely going to meet different aliens um, throughout the, in the first two books for sure. And probably more going forward. Um, you could do a little bit of cyberpunk because it's not really, I mean, it kind of is because he's part of a ship, but the ship's alive. So is that, is he, is that make him a cyborg or something else? You know, it's something a little bit different than what other cyborg things I've done. So probably in one of those categories. The most notable living ship example I can think of was the Wraith high ship in Stargate Atlantis, but this mm -hmm. sounds decidedly less evil. So, yeah. And I, and I have watched that one with the Stargate Atlantis. I probably should put that on my, on my list. Um, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple different ones you can, depends on how you look at it, but it's, it's actually a per, it's not a, it's not an overdone trope in sci-fi, but I think that, um, I, ha I had a really good time exploring it. So I'm, I'm hoping other people enjoy the story. Most of the time it's either a living, but not sentient or it's sentient, but it's like AI driven. I don't think I've right. seen anywhere it's both living and sentient as a ship, which right. is a, well, a unique I mean, twist in and of itself. Well, and the thing is, is, is depending on how far the series goes and, and depending on where my twisted imagination dives off to is that if, if you have the ship replacing parts of you with itself, at what point are you the, not the same entity? And so things yeah. get really interesting, you know, in later books. Because so what if you became a living starship? At what point in time, like what's the origin story of the ship itself? Do you dive into that? We do touch on that a little bit. That's going to be a little bit uh, veiled in mystery, but there's some reasons because one of the key things about the the um, about Kayan is that that those living starships cannot uh, have weapons. <clears throat> and if you re if you listen to the the story, you'll find out pretty quickly that they're also known for if you travel on a on a Kayan, um, then it heals you to a certain extent. And so a lot of people will take these ships because at a time they were the only things that could travel faster than light or go, go long distances until other technologies caught up. So they were, they were sought after for that, but they're also very sought after for because they kind of heal what ails you because they're kind of like a really benevolent type of hospital ship type thing. But they come from a, they came in their origin story. Not all the ships were this because that only makes sense. You know, you got warriors and not warriors. So, there's some some darkness in the past that might spoiler alert pop out to cause a lot of problems in the sense of maybe a living warship. So, all right, I, I can dig it. So, what tropes did you think uh, that you leaned into when you were writing Homeworld Lost? 
Oh, well, I, I always lean into the, uh, the, the squad kind of squad level dynamics. So I like a, a short, a small squad. So from a tactical perspective, when they're like, you know, say clearing rooms or exploring a, you know, ancient Citadel or something, it's going to be on a squad level. I like that interaction in the byplays. So, and your tropes are going to be a lot, a lot of that, a lot of, um, exploring a strange alien planet, encountering hostile types of creatures, um, you know, your exploration, your, your new civilizations, uh, the, the confusion that happens when, you know, intelligent species meet up because there's always some misunderstandings, those types of things. So you're describing clash of cultures. And just because I've read enough of your books, you also, like me, tend to dive into the everyman concept because you don't oh, tend to write super secret special squirrel. Even when they're in those positions, they were just sort of your average Joe. It could be you, I think, is what, what you yeah. write. And I, I I think I like to write, you know, I think I like to write kind of the guardian uh, archetype. Um, but I think I like to write stories where at least some of the characters in there, they're kind of like the person most people, most guys or even gals want to be where you could, you know, leap tall buildings in a single bound and, you know, and save the day. You know, I like, I like my heroes to be heroic and I like my villains to be villainous. Um, I do kind of tend towards, um, kind of the benefit of the doubt thing where a lot of times you're confronted with a villain. You're like, you know, I could be the villain. My main characters will think that, um, or if a few things change, maybe, maybe that, that arch villain could be the good guy, but you know, just, you have to see, cause they make, make, what is, what is, what's the saying? You play stupid games, you win stupid prizes. It's kind of one of those yep. things as far as the fate of each character. So let's talk about the, the characters. So what can you tell us about your main character? What makes him special in the crowded field of science fiction? You know, the main character one, he's got an amazing sense of humor, but he is. So if you go into your everyman thing, so the main character's name is Noah Gantz and he has, of course, a, what do you call it? Uh, uh, a legacy. You know, his, his grandfather and father were all amazing. His grandfather was a war hero. Um, he went off to college and to do those things. And of course flunked out because he was, you know, doing fun stuff and wind up enlisting. So kind of matured. He became a, um, he was in the air force. So he was, uh, security forces. So he got a little bit of tactical experience, but he really wanted to be a pilot because his grandfather was a pilot. So eventually he gets his act cleaned up, goes to OCS and eventually becomes a pilot. So that way I get a character that can got some ground fighting on the ground skills and, and ground fighting. Uh, Cause I like to ground fight. And, uh, but then also the pilot mentality. So you kind of get both of those characters. Um, you know, he's terribly loyal to his family and to his friends. He misses home, wants to protect it. He's willing to make those sacrifices. Uh, He's uh, he knows that he's probably going to fail, but he's going to try anyway. So it's, you know, it's, it's your main character kind of in a, in a short summary. Okay. Were there any secondary characters that were especially memorable to you? I always love my secondary characters. I'm, sometimes I love my secondary characters more. Um, <clears throat> I really like Wazim. He's the battle, the battle Lord. He's really fun. Um, mostly because he's just fearsome, but he was interesting to develop because 
one of the things I learned as a writer is having a big cast, it's hard to write and, it, and people don't like being confused by 50 characters. And so I had to find ways to limit the interaction. So when the story starts out, it's mostly the main character in the ship. Maybe one other person like Montau, who's a ship engineer, captain type character. But so he keeps running into Wazim, but Wazim won't even talk to him. He just grunts at him. And so that's it's a really fun to develop that relationship until eventually they're hanging trash on each other, but they don't start that way at all. Um, I have a character who's literally marked as a mischief maker among her people. So she's obviously a hoot. Um, I got you kind of your natural spy. You're kind of your natural spy. And, uh, and she's, you know, smart and capable and kind of like a female born identity type character. Um, that is also amazing. And, and then, and I have, uh, scratch which is i describe him as being a lynx golden retriever type character but also with a <laughs> deadly spiked tail so we'll see what happens as he grows to adult uh, maturity okay there's um, others but what about this yeah no that's okay so what about the the ship would is there anything you could tell us about that because i'm guessing that's a secondary character but we don't want spoilers Oh yeah. So the ship is very interesting. Um, the ship is alive. It's very large. Um, the ship can <clears throat> grow things like, for example, if it thinks you need some sort of armor or suit, it can design and grow that for you. Uh, there's limitations and how long it takes and all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> and it can change its shape and it can move things around within the ship. So you kind of have, you could, if you were like being an asshole on the ship, you might have some problems because the ship could make your life very difficult by changing the rooms around on you. <clears throat> so you want to be nice in that way. And uh, there's parts of the ship you can't go to for various reasons. And everybody, when they go like faster than light or the ver or their workaround for faster than light travel, you have to basically be in a pod or a safety crash and those have a lot of interesting um, side effects and, and things that are fun in the story as well. So um, <clears throat> I can't remember the original question, but the ship is, the ship is a complex character. Ship has a sense of humor. Actually, I gave the, the ship more because the, the ship is basing all of its knowledge of earth history on memories that it can share with, uh, with our main character, Noah. And so there are several times where he warns it says, you really need to, you really need to, watch your, your literary references because I got a C minus in that class. I wasn't paying attention, you know? So the ship kind of <laughs> develops, they're, they're affecting each other. So the ship every now and then will just draw, will just hang some trash on them. that like really gets them, you know, zip really flip a zinger at them. Most of the time it's kind of an alien uh, Spock like character, but every now and then they'll fire one over there across the bow. That's a definitely a Scottism. The hang some trash on someone to, to mention making making jokes. I like it. Yeah, that might end up in one of my books. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, does your story have a bad guy that you can tell us about without spoilers? Because obviously, we want people to read the books themselves and and engage in that way. The main bad guy, if I tell you about him, would definitely be a spoiler, <clears throat> but you'll figure it out pretty quickly uh, who who that is. But there's kind of a secondary bad guy who is. Um, who is, who is a hunter. Uh, and he, the, so the alien empire, basically, I, I try not to call it an empire, but it's called the Gavant reach is the name of the bad guys or their organization. And, uh, Rig is a hunter for the Gavant. And so he hunts Kayan. So, um, 
a KN is all KNs are have the same name. So there's like 50 KNs or however many there are in the whole universe. And they all have the same name. So it's a little confusing, but it works out because right now you're only dealing with one. So he hunts them. <clears throat> and, and, you know, and he's a, he's extremely capable, you know, he's kind of like, if they let Boba Fett actually be a badass like he's supposed to be, um, or like I always thought he would be, um, he would be that guy as a ship captain. Maybe like if Han okay. Solo was, if Han Solo went to the dark side and started just being kind of an unscrupulous bounty hunter, then it would probably, he would, Rag might be that guy. Except that he's alien, he doesn't really look that human, kind of human-ish, but um, I'll leave the descriptions of their body physiques to the book. So speaking of characters, we know that as authors, we tend to do no, horrible, no good, nasty things to the characters in our books. So mm. if Noah met you in a back alley or the starship, uh, Kayan, um, if they met you in a dark alley and they knew who you were and you were the creator of their torment, how do you see that interaction playing out? I'd see me running as fast as I could and probably not getting away because by that's by the that point they were <laughs> pretty up, upgraded. Okay. Yeah. Uh, no, so, you know, Noah's Noah's in a starship explosion and the ship had to put him back together. So he's, you know, been completely rebuilt to the best potential of his of his original genetics, plus added with alien starship DNA and then given some hardware for the pieces that were missing, you know, some little pieces of armor here and there and some other things. So, so Noah, uh, the main character gets a, gets a, a upgrade pretty quickly and um, some others as the, as the um, series goes on, because he's got to, you got to do these things to stay ahead of the bad guys. Did you like RoboCop as a kid? I'm, I'm getting some definite RoboCop vibes with the, uh, the upgrades. I did like RoboCop. The funny thing was I was working in a movie theater when that movie came out. And I remember, standing there and uh, watching the parents and their small children come streaming out the other way after the first scene. So Disney kind of. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. That was, that was uh, since we, since we mentioned characters, do you have a fair, favorite character archetype you like when you're writing? You know, I, 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 um, I like the the badass hero who knows better and is you know somewhat mature and self aware, but just sometimes he just can't resist himself of given given uh, you know kind of what's the authority song. He's going to fight authority and maybe sometimes wins, but regardless, he's still going to fight. Okay, so you mentioned a lot about the universe where this is happening. And obviously there's a lot you can't mention because of spoilers, but is there anything about the universe that you wanted to tell us before we, before we move on um, that, that would not be a spoiler? You know, um, it's just you know, the whole, the whole universe or the whole galaxy that are in the reach is um, it. It's just, it's at the boiling point. Let's just put it that way. You know, the Gavant have control of everybody. They are they are the 800-pound gorilla in the room that nobody can resist. But every world they conquer is somewhat autonomous just because the nature of space is big and they, they have their own little regions of influence. So there's lots of powerful, capable, diverse, um, you know, very rich cultures, technology, and to their, their, their different various social orders and history. Um, and they're all very much still players in the game. And so... 
when they've had enough and everything kind of kicks off and every, and all these people decide they don't want to be under the Gavant's rule, it's going to get pretty interesting pretty quickly, depending on where the alliances fall and uh, what type of technology and what type of external threats that nobody's seen yet enter into the whole scenario. So like I said, boiling points, all I had to say, scariest environment imaginable. Okay. So uh, we mentioned that Homeworld Lost is part of a series uh, because that's all Cheney does. So what's next for this, uh, this, these characters that you can tell us without spoilers? Well, um, they're going to make the first book, some bad things happen to them in order to survive. They're going to have to go on some kind of some side quests that actually maybe not are side quests. Maybe they're the main quest. It's hard to say, but they're going to have to do some things um, and make some sacrifices to keep some of the characters alive and to stay ahead of some of the things from Kane's past that really Kane doesn't really tell them about because that's, that's not something her, her kind talk about. Okay. Is that vague so enough? What sort of tech? Yeah, absolutely. Makes me want to read more. So what kind of tech can we expect from these books? Obviously the spaceship's alive. So that's, you know, in genetic enhancement and engineering, but what other tech can we expect? So you have, you have faster than light travel, but it's, it's more, I, I think it was, around faster than life, faster than light. Um, so there's a couple different variations of space travel. The um, <clears throat> Kane has one way. The Gavant have their own way to, to move those distances. The Titans, who are the battle warriors, Wazim's a Titan battle lord, um, they have a unique thing that they can do between planets that we're going to go into that should make some really interesting stories and, uh, and plot complications. Uh, weapon systems, you know, there's going to be energy weapons, but I like to... I don't like to make my weapons like too all powerful. So there's going to be some limitations to those. Uh, there, there might be some simpler weapons. I like having some swords and melee weapons because sometimes on a ship, you don't want to be blasting holes and everything. You got to fight close up. And because of some honor traditions for some of the different races, so they'll have various weapons there. Uh, lots of types of armor. Um, there'll be going to be some mech or mech like armor with different things. There'll be some small ship action, but, I don't know how much space battling we're going to do because that's kind of a fool's errand. I think we can agree in, in, in sci-fi, but you know, it's also fun. So the rule of cool could come in there. Um, and there's definitely going to be some technology, some ancient civilization stuff that's popping up, which, you know, when you, when you think you got everything figured out as the character, somebody's got to throw a big monkey wrench in your plans and uh, going to institute some of these things. So of all the tech that you've put in this universe so far, um, what would you want for your daily use? Oh, I think having a living starship that would like, you know, heal me every time I jump the wrong way and bang myself up would be great. You know, for example, uh, Kayan makes him this suit of armor that he can wear. Basically, it's originally designed for just doing EVA stuff, but he uses it in lots of scenarios. But it's, you know, it makes him seven and a half feet tall. And if he wants to be taller, he can be a little bit taller. He learns pretty quickly that's not a good way to fight because he gets too tall for his for his um, body mechanics. Um, but yeah, so maybe some K in battle armor or since they can't make technically battle armor, just some K in armor would be fantastic. I'd take some of that. And how would you abuse that? Because let's face it, if we had a lightsaber, we'd be poking our eyes out. Oh, I'd be, I'll be jumping off of things, running through things, you know, cause you can scuba dive, you can go into space. You can, you know, put your fist through a stone wall. Maybe, I don't know. I haven't done that yet in the story, but you know, maybe we'll try that out and see if anybody breaks their hand. 
um, you know, just basically, you know, all the, you know, when you're like 14 and you think you can jump and run off of anything and you do stuff that, you know, you ride a four wheeler and stand on the seat instead of like on the foot pegs, you know, stuff like that. That'd be the, that'd be the way to, to use that. I'm just saying there's a reason girls live longer than boys. There is. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm really surprised I'm still alive. It's just for being honest. Yeah, I, I've been uh, writing up some of my experiences in Iraq into a stories that will never be published, but, you know, that are there for the kids as they, you know, when I'm long dead. And I read some of the, what I've written about what I did, and I'm like, how the hell did I not die? And yeah. I imagine since you did it every day as a SWAT officer for a long time, you, you probably have even more stories like, well, well that could have gone belly up a lot of different ways. My most dangerous stuff happened before I was ever even old enough to enlist or get a job. I mean, like I, I rolled a car <laughs> into a ring when I was 16, you know, we just, it just, this, the list goes really on. I just, so I, I really believe in guardian angels because that's really the only possible explanation for why I'm even still here. So before we, uh, we start uh, wrapping this stuff up, I do have an important question for you, the starship. So you mentioned that it's alive. Mm -hmm. uh, living things have growth cycles. So can the ship grow as yeah. it uh, adds more room and, and alters itself? The ship can grow. It's funny you mentioned that. Um, the ship can grow and because this ship's about is young. So it's like 400 years old. So it's young ship, <clears throat> but they can get significantly bigger and do different things. Um, and then they can also transport this is a little bit of a spoiler, but I'll give it to you. So they can also transport, kind of the terrestrial versions of the living starship. And those have some potential for some different stories. So how do you, I mean, obviously, you know, if you get too de deep in logistics, it's boring, but you know, you have to pay nod to the idea that, you know, to be alive, you have to eat. So mm -hmm. how do you handle things like uh, consumables and whatnot on your ship? That's a big part of the plot because Kane has to feed and there's a certain, region of each star system where it's most likely to find what she needs to, to make that happen. There can what be about for the inhabitants of the starship. Well, they, they try okay. to resupply, they try to resupply whenever they, um, you know, come to port so they can have stuff that they, but Kane can also synthesize a lot of stuff that's, uh, passes for, you know, things. One of the, one of the things that the main character does a lot is, he starts cooking everybody breakfast and he starts this kind of breakfast ritual, which none of them understand at first, but eventually they become really attached to it. And, uh, cause it, you know, they're not, they're not really used to that type of, uh, camaraderie or family. And, but he's just trying to do what, how he was raised, you know, once we're ready to get together around the table and have some fun. And, but he, but he gets raw materials that are egg like, he doesn't really ask where they come from, but, but that stuff can be synthesized and then you can do what you need to do with it. Have you seen the movie Demolition Man where he's eating a steak and they're like, do you see any cows around here? And then <laughs> yeah. the rat scurries by. <laughs> I picture that in some of these sci-fis. Like you just don't ask questions about where the meat yeah. comes from. Yeah, I love that movie so much. Oh, it's so good. So you mentioned that you have alien creatures in this book. So, you know, you can answer specifically for Homeworld Lost or you can answer more broadly, but... How do you go about creating these creatures? Do you let your nightmares inspire you? Do you let Mother Nature? Do you make it up completely? Do you pull from myth and lore? Like, what's your process of creating these aliens? You know, and it's it's weird because my, my creative process is mostly momentum. And it's just, it's a consistent habit of daydreaming. So it's really not hard for me to come up with these creatures and stuff. You know, you think about all the input we've had into our brains, you know, 
you know, all the hundreds of movies we've watched, books we've read, you know, our, our own original imaginations, it's all in this big slurry. And so um, I'll come up with something and then I'll start going along. And what happens a lot of times is I'll make up an alien, but I realize it's not, it's kind of a top of the head alien. I'm like, this could be a lot more original. And so I'll go back. I'm like, okay. So like, like one of the characters is called a gleam and, and her name's Lena because I like that name. And I was trying not to make the names too hard to say. Um, but so Lena is a gleam. Well, a gleam there, the, my first thought was, well, they kind of have this like liquid mercury texture of their skin, kind of like the silver surfer. But I'm like, well, that's kind of been done. So I'm like, what if she had a real thin, like a diamond exterior? So basically gleams are like, they have this kind of liquid metallic look, but then their, their exterior is like kind of like a diamond shell that covers everything. And then um, Lena has some imperfections in those, that gemstone look where she has red. Um, she has a red crown and she has a red hand. And in her culture, having either one of those means you're really a troublemaker to be avoided, but she's got them both. And so you immediately know, if you know that little bit about their culture, that this is a character who's going to be uh, probably in the middle of every impossible problem that can be fabricated. But, you know, so it's just kind of where I go. You kind of go, okay, well, what if this? What if that? Okay, well, are they big? And like, well, I have too many big characters. Okay, this one's going to be small. And then, okay, if they're small, what would make them still fearsome? And then you do something else. Okay, well, maybe they need more legs or maybe they need less legs. Or maybe this maybe this um, creature can, you know, process exoskeleton projectiles. You know, you just you just start mixing and matching stuff until you come up with something. And then you, then you lock into it and then you riff on it. That's how I do it. Okay. So needs of the story driven. I can dig that. So, you know, clearly this is uh, winding down this interview, but was there anything about Homeworld Lost that I didn't ask that you, you think the reader needs to know before they go out and buy your book? Only that they should give it a chance. Um, I think so. The I guess the most important thing about this is that, you know, this is going to hopefully put you on the edge of your seat. Um, but it's good. It's a good time book. You know, I, I, I'm, I like to, I like to write about dark stuff, but I don't like to leave you in a dark place. That makes sense. So <clears throat> while the characters might have some challenges, have to make some really rough decisions, you know, some moral quandaries and stuff. The, the, the focus is on, on the family and the fun and, and, and adventure and the hijinks and all that good sci-fi stuff. <coughs> Okay. And speaking of uh, fun, I would like to remind you, dear listener, to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Your reviews help the right readers find the right books. So do your part. Uh, you can go review it on Goodreads, on Amazon, on Barnes & Noble. Uh, you could review it over on Cheney's website. But whatever you do, share your thoughts. Start a website. Write a review there. Do all the things. It really does help get the books that you like to have sequels because if they don't sell, the author can't write them because it isn't free to get an edit. Uh, with yeah. that being said, Scott, how can listeners find you? And as usual, all of those links will be in the show notes. Um, so if you want to get a quick look at all my books, go to scottmoonwriter.com. And that's you know a pretty clean site. should be easy to find stuff there. Or you can get up, get me on Facebook. I have the moon base. Um, and uh, that's that's where I do most of my interaction you know, with fans. And then I, I have a newsletter. You can find it through either through my webpage or through the through the uh, Facebook group if you want to get newsletters, which I don't do super frequently, but I send them out from time to time. 
So do you think that your last name being Moon is the reason that you became a sci-fi writer? If your last name had been Sword instead, would you be telling tales of dragons? I want to write fantasy very badly someday, but right now I'm writing sci-fi. Yeah, no, I don't know. People, and that's the funny thing, is a lot of people think this it's a pen name, but this is actually my actual name. So, and it's easy to remember. Uh, yeah, I, I'm aware because we had that conversation when we first met. It's crazy. So, I, I get, but I mean, the moon base. Yeah. That's just such a perfect fan club name. It took me a long time to get that. And I, and I've, I've, I, I came up, I had, well, it actually technically it's the Scott moon base because I, I picked the moon base and then it was like a NASA site. And I was like, I'm probably not going to be able to out arm wrestle NASA. So I guess we'll have the Scott moon base. <laughs> okay. You can find us a dear listener over on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com again, blasters and blades podcast at gmail.com. We do answer those emails. People, we have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. Again, backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast. We are still working on a dedicated URL for our Facebook page, but it's out there. So type in blasters and blades Facebook page in the little search bar on Facebook and you will find us. I promise. We have a website over at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where for as little as 99 cents a month, you can help keep the lights on. And we really do appreciate that support. Or you can support the show more directly at buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author J.R. Hanley. Uh, and be sure to put in the comment section for the podcast. And I promise I will keep my co-hosts, Nick Garber and Doc Seska, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes. We really appreciate you coming by, Scott. This was a lot of fun, and we'll have to do it again. And uh, next time we'll drag Cheney on too. Uh, I mean, you know, yeah, sure. Sail the world. Uh, I know. See the seven seas. It's more important than our little show. Right. But uh, yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> so thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley. And this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. It's a wrap. <laughs>